Welcome to Shark Bites and Gay Rights. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Pepin-Neff, the podcast to help you build a better dinner party conversation. From New York to Newtown and Darlinghurst to West Hollywood, this is the only podcast that talks about sharks and gays and assumes the gays are more dangerous. Every fortnight, the vibe will be the best stories and topics ever so we can activate your dinner party conversation and elevate your life. On today's episode of Shark Bites and Gay Rights, we're going to talk about the global conspiracy against sharks. So as we introduce this question about the global conspiracy against sharks, the usual question I get, and I remember getting it from my mom because I used to say to my mom, you know, mom, 40% of reported shark attacks have no injury. And my mom would say, it only takes one, Chris. You know, and it sort of goes to this point, this this deep down emotional point that sharks do bite, that they are a threat. I'm not here to say that sharks aren't dangerous. I'm here to say we need to be respectful and we need to be honest about how dangerous they are. And that includes debunking some of the myths that go around about how sharks are dangerous, right? Because they're not all true. And so today on this episode about the global conspiracy against sharks, I'm going to walk through some of the most important stories about how sharks are dangerous. And I'm basically going to argue that in this case, in this select cases, they are not. But having said that, again, I think there should be some ground rules for how we talk about shark bites. The first is that we're not being gratuitous, that when I talk about shark bites and there is an actual injury, which again happens, you know, 40% of them don't and 60% of them do have an injury, then it's important to be not gratuitous, but honest about the danger that some of this puts people in. The second is that we're sensitive, that it's important to be sensitive to the fact that these injuries devastate people. They devastate their lives. They can devastate communities. And when someone's life is taken or someone is seriously injured, these are catastrophic injuries. So I'm not saying sharks aren't dangerous. I'm not saying we should be gratuitous. I'm not saying they aren't catastrophic. What I am saying is that no one is to blame. That if you came to this podcast to hear about how sharks are to blame, that fish are to blame for humans going in the water, you came to the wrong podcast. I'm not here to talk about how when humans make a choice to go in the water, which is the shark's domain, that it's the shark's fault. So we're not here to talk about that. I also don't believe it's the person's fault. I'm not making that my argument either. I think these are blameless incidents like lightning strikes. That's what we're really dealing with here, something very close to a lightning strike. I don't blame the lightning, and I don't blame the person for being the tallest object in the field. And the last thing I want us to do in these ground rules is what we call in academia troubling the assumption that you would say, okay, Chris, sharks don't attack. Okay, well, then what do they do? Shark attacks aren't always resulting in an injury. We call it injurious. Okay, so we're troubling those two assumptions. And maybe there's a third assumption that's built in there as well around the way we think of sharks as intentionally coming for us, right? 
This is the old, and we'll get to it in the podcast, but the old rogue shark theory, right? The Jaws shark, that sharks get a taste for human flesh and come after us. And I'm going to trouble that assumption today. The assumption that sharks have, again, in academia, what we call agency, right? They know who we are and they're coming for us. We're going to question that today. We're going to trouble the assumption. So with those rules in mind, let's go into a conversation about the global conspiracy against sharks. So there are a few stories I want to share, and I'm going to start with some light fare, okay? Some light stories where no one is hurt, and they're kind of just funny. So in the first case, I have a friend who was running when it's little kids, and if you're in America and you're listening to this, we call them bubs, right? Little children or nippers. And we had nippers, and my friend was putting them in the water, and I was not on the boat. This is in Thailand. My friend is running a boat for nippers to go swimming. He starts tossing the little kids in the water to swim with whale sharks. And whale sharks are docile and beautiful, and they are the largest fish in the ocean, and no one has anything to worry about with a whale shark. They don't even have teeth. The little kids are being put in the water because the tour guide sees the whale shark. So as he's tossing the nippers in the water, the whale shark gets a little closer and it's a big one. And then he's tossing another one in and the whale shark's getting even closer. So he stands up and he takes another look at the whale shark and realizes that's not a whale shark. That's a tiger shark. And I've just been throwing little kids in the water while the tiger shark is swimming into us. So he starts grabbing the the little nippers and taking them out of the water. And it's a four and a half meter tiger shark that swims by. So everyone's fine. But this is a story about a tour guide who messed up. Not a story about a shark that shouldn't have been swimming through the water. The shark was just there. The shark was there before the nippers were there. He threw the nippers into the water with the shark. When people were sort of considering this story, they were like, oh, this troubled the assumption. There's a question about whether or not this is a shark story. I don't think it's a shark story. I think this is a liability insurance story or training your staff to recognize fish story, but it's not a shark story. And the little kids were probably happy as a clam, having a good time going in, coming out of the water, everything's fine. But again, there is this agency, this pre-sold story about how sharks are bad. And that's just one of them. I'll tell one other one just as we get warmed up. So in Cape Town, South Africa, they were having another nippers day, a little kid's day. So the little nippers, these little kids were going to go in the water and the surf lifesavers were there with them. They were putting these electronic shark deterrents in the water. And what they did was they tied them all together, about 20 of them, and strung them out along the beach in the water, like a, like a net, like a fence. And so they had this fence of shark deterrents that were there, all emitting these pulsating electronic shocks. Little kids get in the water and the shark deterrent is in the water. And then there's a great white shark in the water. And the great white shark swims up to the shark deterrent and swims under it and swims in with the kids, ignores the kids, ignores the nippers, turns around starts to swim out, gets zapped by the shark deterrent on the way out, turns back around to the kids, and now the shark's angry and is thrashing about until it finally goes away. Again, 
not a story about a shark. This is a story about how when man interferes in nature, bad things happen. I could list 300 examples of where bad things happen when humans sort of think they've outsmarted the fish, right? And they think they've outsmarted lightning or they think they've outsmarted hurricanes and they end up creating a, a situation. Those are my two stories that I want to share the Thailand story and the Cape Town story. Again, neither of the stories are shark stories. So, what I would like to do, if I can, is walk you through a few different timelines and a few different stories that happen within these timelines. The first starts in 1899, where there's a number of shark bites that have happened in the course of one day. And it's in Port Said near the Suez Canal. These shark bites happen, and there's three of them. And they're written up in the British Medical Journal in 1899. I'm just going to read real quick what they say. Many people have expressed the opinion that it must have been one shark which bit all three boys. And I think that very likely. Everyone was fine. These were minor shark bites. So you end up in a situation where there's three shark bites. But if it's you, obviously, this is a big deal. And for this community, it was a big deal. So it happened over the course of one day. So it was three shark bites on three different people all in the same day in the same general area. And the theory was it must be the same shark. And then this comes out in the British Medical Journal. So this is the start of the rogue shark theory, the theory that sharks get a taste for human flesh, the theory that it's always the same shark. And if you just kill that shark, that will solve all your problems. This is the centerpiece of the global conspiracy against sharks. The idea that sharks have this grudge against people and act out and bite multiple people within a day. Well, Chris, why isn't that the case? Well, the reason it's not the case is because sharks travel really a great distance. They move very quickly throughout the day and they're not in the same area. They don't sort of circle and linger unless there's some food supply or something, like unless there's seals or a whale carcass or something like that that's there. There is only one case that I've ever heard of, of where there was photographic evidence of one particular shark, and it was an oceanic white tip, which are a very nasty type of shark. Those are the ones that you see in the movies with the plane crash and the person ends up in a raft and diving for fish. Those are the sharks you run into. You don't run into great whites and you don't run into tiger sharks usually. You would run into oceanic white tips. They can be quite nasty. So in this case, there was one shark that had been, it had sort of been being trained in divers. There was a like a tourist guide, another tourist guide, who was feeding the oceanic white tip when from a bag out of the back of behind them. In this case, the shark sort of got accustomed to getting food out from the back of the person. So then when the person wasn't there anymore and a group of tourists swam to that general location, the shark bit the back of two people. I'm pretty sure both people died. So these are very serious situations that happen. But again, not a story about sharks in their natural environment 
running into multiple people. So whether it's 1899, oh, and coincidentally, the tourist being bidden around the back was in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This is not the same shark from 1899 that swam in in 2010 or 2011 and bit these people. That's not the same one. What we're dealing with is a set of stories and a set of facts. The story that we think we know sort of fits the facts. But if you trouble the assumption, you find out that it doesn't, that the shark was not acting naturally, that the shark had been trained essentially to look for food behind people. So it did. That, again, is not a story about a shark. That's a story about human intervention in the natural world that leads to something bad happening. And I'm not taking the shark off the hook. I've given oceanic white tips a nasty label because I think they generally deserve it. But that's not the whole story. So what was my point? (laughs) My point was that in 1899, this story gets going and this rogue shark theory begins. And then in the mid-1900s, like about 1930, 31, 32, 33, there is an American researcher who's sort of a big game hunter, and he does illustrations and writes books. And his name is Horace Mazette. And Horace Mazette has decided that he's going to address the problem of shark attacks. But he doesn't believe that sharks just attack. He's seen the notice about this 1899 story, and he believes that sharks get what he calls shark rabies, in that sharks get a taste for human flesh. He's been a big game hunter. He's seen animals in the wild, and he believes that sharks are like tigers or other animals that are dogs, right, that might actually get rabies. So he starts writing to researchers around the world. And one of the researchers that he writes to is Victor Koppelson. Sir Victor Koppelson is in World War I and comes back to Australia in 1929. And he's a medical doctor. He's a surgeon at the University of Sydney, where I teach. He decides that he's going to begin an investigation into why sharks attack But it's a little bit tricky, right? He's come back in 1929, and there are a series of shark bites that happen around Sydney, Australia, in 1929. But at the time, the lead researcher on the case, David Stead, he's the head of the fisheries investigation into the shark bites, says that sharks do not patrol the beaches looking for human prey. That's a quote. What he says is that these are shark accidents in that these are similar to other kinds of beach accidents that happen along a stretch of coastline. And we should begin to think of them that way. Well, Horace Mazette doesn't like this. And Horace Mazette is writing these letters to Victor Koppelson. One of the other things that really annoyed Horace Mazette was that in 1916, there was the New Jersey case that happened, right? This is the shark that swam up the river inlet and bit a number of people, and I believe four people died in 1916. And this mobilized the Coast Guard and Woodrow Wilson got involved, and it was a terrible, terrible situation. One of the things that happened in that situation was that the head of the Natural History Museum put out a statement 
stating that this couldn't have been a shark. It must have been a barracuda or it must have been something else that was leading to the initial fatalities in New Jersey because sharks don't bite north of the Caribbean. The theory was that it's not a shark. You end up with this situation where you've got the rogue shark theory starting to build in 1899. You've got a series of shark bites that happen that are attributed to one shark again in 1916. And now you've got Horace Mazette, who's got a bone to pick with the research and wants to prove that sharks get shark rabies. So he writes a letter to Victor Copelson, the leading researcher in this area in Sydney, Australia. Back to our story. Victor Copelson is working on this compendium of he's written to a number of different newspapers and asked them for little clippings that he can put together so he can paste together. It's sort of like Googling, right? He basically Googled by sending letters to different newspapers and asking them to send him the clippings of the local shark bites that had happened. So he did that and started to put together a picture of of what he thought was going on. It's important to note that up till this point, we're still dealing with We've got the inklings of rogue sharks, but we've got shark accidents being argued for pretty strongly. So we end up in a scenario where in 1899, the rogue shark theory is born. In 1916, it looks like it's proven. You've got this incident and these terrible fatalities in New Jersey. And then in 1929, you've got the introduction of shark accidents. So there's this conflict between researchers that's going on. The shark behavior is the same, but the conflict between researchers is what's different here. So Horace Mazette sends letters to Victor Copelson in Sydney and says that you need to clear this up. Sharks get shark rabies and you have a responsibility because they're not handling this properly. So what there needs to be is there needs to be some finality to the issue of shark attacks so that people are clear around the world that sharks do attack. So Victor Copelson takes this compendium of research that he's got at his disposal that he collected from the newspapers. He puts out an article in the Australian Medical Journal that says the evidence that sharks will attack man is complete. That begins to shift the language around shark attacks. The Australian Medical Journal is highly well regarded. So was the British Medical Journal. And now you have the two of them that are in alignment, right? Plus Horus Mazette, plus the fatalities in New Jersey. The story is emerging. Rogue sharks are real. There's no one to push back. David Stead sort of moves on from getting pilloried for saying that there are shark accidents and being pushed back on. The shark attack mania really takes hold as the central principle of shark behavior, even though, as we've noted, rogue sharks don't exist. It wasn't the same shark that bit the three people in the Suez Canal. It likely wasn't the same shark that bit the people in New Jersey. It is not consistent with shark behavior. It is sort of wildly inconsistent with shark behavior. As a result, you have a different storyline for sharks that begins to unravel. And the answer to the problem is always shark hunts. Kill the shark. Kill the shark or kill the shark. That's what they did in New Jersey. That's what they try to do in other areas. That story that I was telling about Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, they went and killed a shark in that story as well, but it was the wrong shark and there was another shark bite that occurred. 
what we see is that, again, when humans intervene in these kinds of things, bad things tend to happen. It's not really curious as to why. It just ends up happening. An important part of this global conspiracy against sharks is Australia. Now, in Australia, in 1788, you end up with a scenario where invaders come, right? This is an invasion of the native peoples, of the first nations, peoples that lived in Australia, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples. And what you have is the colonists, the settlers, the invaders, whatever you want to call them, coming over on these boats. And remember what the population was for most of the states that came over were convicts. Now, the guards who guarded them on the boats told a story in 1788, and the story went like this. Australia, it's a crazy country. It's a land of dangerous animals. You wouldn't want to swim in the water because of the sharks. You wouldn't want to run through the bush because of the snakes. And you got to watch out for the spiders. Why would they tell this story? Maybe because the guards didn't want the convicts to try to escape. This was a strategy that was used by what the, the guards are called penalists. The penalists and the wardens and the guards all got together and built this storyline of a treacherous land in Australia where the odd things happen in order to convince convicts to not try to escape. So that's where Australia gets this weird, bizarre, treacherous reputation from. It doesn't get it from Time Magazine, which we'll get to in a minute, and it doesn't get it from cable news. It gets it from 1788 in the first fleet that came over here to invade Australia. The second story I want to tell you about Australia is called the Shark Arm Case, and this happens in 1935. So in 1935, Jim Smith is basically a Sydney cider, but he's dealing with the mob and the underbelly of Sydney and has basically run afoul of the mob and he's killed. Jim Smith is cut up into pieces and rowed out to the water and tossed in the water. Well, a shark comes along and bites one of the unfortunately tragic pieces of Jim Smith. Then that shark, the tiger shark, is caught about three kilometers off of Kuji Beach and is brought back to Kuji Beach because at the time, in 1935, there was sort of a, a little aquarium in the Kuji Bay Hotel. And they would take strange fish, strange animals, sharks, and toss them in and watch them swim around for a couple of days until they died. And this was Australia Day in 1935. They took the shark and threw it. That's why they were out there fishing for it. They fished for it. The fisherman sells the shark to the Coogee Bay Hotel. The Coogee Bay Hotel puts it in the aquarium. The shark swims around. Shark looks a little funny. It's starting to turn kind of green. Shark spits out the arm that it had bitten. People who were gathered at this Coogee Bay Hotel stare at the arm the bit of the sort of the arm that came out and notice that there's a tattoo and somebody says, I know that tattoo. That's Jim Smith. And so they take the arm and they bring it to the most renowned surgeon in Sydney 
Who do you think it is? Dr. Victor Koppelson, the shark researcher. And this is where he gets his national fame, one of the lead surgeons in the shark arm case. And so what's going to happen is that he's now moved to the forefront of prominent surgeons in the area. And he basically diagnoses that the person was already dead, that you know must have already been in the water when the shark bit it. And that is what's going on. So let's pause because a couple, three big things have happened here. One, Australia's scene is crazy. The New York Times is going to run a story the next day. The New York Times says on September 23rd, 1935, regardless of man-eating sharks which infest their waters, robust Australians cockily make sea swimming their favorite sport. Since a shark digests an Australian in a few days, it was major Commonwealth news when a huge tiger shark thrashing about under the eyes of fascinated bathers in an aquarium near Coogee Beach suddenly spewed up the contents of its stomach, including an undigested human arm tattooed with two boxers wearing red shorts. That's Time Magazine in 1935. You know how big Time Magazine was in 1935? It was like TikTok. So this, again, was a story about three things, how sharks are sort of treacherous, right? They bit the arm. Well, it was already dead and floating in the water. Two, about how Australia is weird. It is kind of weird. And three, Victor Koppelson in building the myth of the man that made him the central figure in shark behavior for the last 50 years. So now I want to move to a third story, also about Australia. And this is the more controversial one, which is saying something since we've talked about a murder and a number of other things. In this case, I'm talking about the McFanning surfing shark attack where there was no injury. I'm not saying they're not scary. I'm not saying they aren't upsetting. I'm not saying that the watching the video doesn't run a chill down your spine. What I'm saying is that the shark got caught in the cord and was trying to swim away, not trying to bite McFanning. So in this case, this most famous case of 2015, the number one, if you Google shark attack and put it in like Google Trends, 2015 will be a spike. And it's the McFanning story because there's a video It looks really serious, but if you dissect it for a minute, what you'll see is a shark that is trying to get away. That is often the case in these scenarios. One of the things that we're going to talk about more on this podcast at some point is like policy responses to shark bites because shark nets are put in the coastline in 1935 and then again in 1937 in New South Wales in the Sydney area. 40% of the sharks that are caught in the net are caught on the swimmer side of the net, the beach side, trying to escape. They're not trying to bite anyone. They're caught in the net and they're already there. They're already swimming with people. They're already around. But again, that's not the story that fits the storyline, right? The story is rogue sharks exist. Sharks hunt people. Sharks get near people. They bite people. Sharks couldn't be less interested in people 99% of the time. 
And so it's important to really push back and to trouble this assumption and push back on this theory. Okay, I have one more for you. In Western Australia in 2000, there was a very, very, very serious fatal shark attack. And I'm going to call it an attack in this case, and I don't usually, but I think it was aggressive enough where I think my point has never been that their sharks don't attack in infinitum. It's that they attack very rarely. And there was an incident in 2000 where you end up with a gentleman coming out of the water during a morning swim, and he's in waist-deep water, and he's bitten by a shark, and he's killed. And it's terrible. And what happens in response, though, is that the West Australian government tries to kill the shark. A helicopter flies over the shark. It's, I think it's one of the TB copters and it's got footage and the shark kind of lingered. Very rare. But again, this the whole behavior is very rare. The shark lingers and they've got, this person has died. The shark is still there. They're trying to reach the minister or the premier to get authorization to kill the shark. And they're in a meeting, a do not disturb meeting, and they can't get him out. And so the helicopter is swerving over the shark and they're saying, kill the shark, kill the shark. The premier can't be reached. And so the shark swims away and there's statewide outrage that we need to change the law to allow for immediate killing of sharks that are involved in shark bites or really any shark that can be killed that seems reasonably related to a shark bite because it's nearly impossible to find the identical shark. That's really not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a cathartic policy response, an emotional, what I call policy is therapy, right? Where you come up with something that will alleviate distress that the public is experiencing. They pass a law to kill sharks more quickly in WA to establish shark hunts. Then there is another incident that happens in South Australia, and there are two people who are killed on back-to-back days. It's very upsetting. I mean, I'm very upset to even be talking about these. The story here is that a few weeks later, a great white shark is seen to be following a kayak at Cottleslow Beach in Western Australia, which is where this person had died in 2000, and now it's 2001. And the premier at the time comes out now and says, I believe it's the same shark. The same shark from 2000 is back in 2001 and might be responsible for the incident down in South Australia too. Or that there was another shark that was involved in both of those incidents. So I guess theoretically there could have been two rogue sharks, right? The one that's bothering people in Cottleslow Beach and one that's down in South Australia. But anyway, my point here is that this is the Jaws shark, right? I mean, that's what we're all talking about here is that this is the story about Jaws. Well, what ends up happening is Peter Benchley is in London and he's the author of Jaws. He sees that they're talking in Western Australia about killing the shark and going up against the, you know, finding these rogue sharks in different parts of Australia. He basically writes an open letter and he says, rogue sharks don't exist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, that's not what I was saying. Or, or I, I mean, it was what I was saying, but it's, it's a movie. It's a book. It's fiction. It's not real life. This is not shark behavior. He troubled the assumption. 
and his own assumption. So he published this article about how there are no such thing as rogue sharks. And so we start this podcast by talking about the global conspiracy against sharks. And we finish it by having a conversation about how Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws, wanted to change public discourse and public understanding of sharks. And I think that's a real testament to his character and to the work that he did. When we think about sharks today, I hope we'll think about the fact that rogue sharks don't exist. Shark attacks are very, very rare. You know, again, 40% of reported shark attacks have no injury. As we look at the global conspiracy against sharks, we really think for a moment about what is the evidence that builds that up and begin to question it. So in today's episode, we've talked about Thailand tourist guides. We've talked about Cape Town nippers. We've talked about the shark arm case. We talked about the New Jersey case. We covered a lot of material. And it's all bound up in this general idea that there is a global conspiracy against sharks. And so I'd like to push back and suggest that there's a new story. And I hope when you share the stories from today, they make sense and that sharks get a fair shake. Thanks for listening to Shark Bites and Gay Rights with your host, Dr. Chris Pepin-Neff. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe for free and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. For more information about who we are and what we do, visit sharkbitesandgayrights.com. Thank you.